Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm very happy to be with you this evening, and I am so happy you chose to tune in or to play the stream or the archive or the podcast or however you're listening, present or future. I assume no one's listening in the past. That'd be kind of neat. I've got a great interview for you this evening with Aaron Sachs, professor of history at Cornell. He's got a really thoughtful book that we're going to get into here in a couple of moments. It's a, um, I need to set a little bit of context because I haven't done a book interview in a few weeks, and I'm so happy to get back into the book interviews. Last week, we had the big uh, five-year anniversary show. Thanks to everyone who showed up for that. And in fact, uh, one of the stories that I brought up from past shows on last week's, on last week's episode has a, coincidentally, has a new update that just broke uh, within the last day or two. And uh, if we have time, and I think we will, after the Aaron Sachs interview, I'm going to give you a little update on that story. So uh, stay tuned for that. And if you didn't listen to the five-year anniversary show, uh, that would be one to dive into. After this episode, uh, at some point, we went through a bunch of highlights of some of the previous 240-odd shows of Tectonic uh, as recommended by listeners. So thanks to all of you per- for participating in that. So now we're back. We're going we're gonna to dive back into book interviews, which I like to do on um, not every week, but, but many, many weeks. And this book is, uh, I, it, it's, as I said, is very thoughtful. This is a dual biography, essentially. I mean, it's a lot more than that, but I'm just trying to set a little context before I play this, this interview with Aaron Sachs. The name of the book is Up From the Depths, and if you go to the playlist at WFMU.org, just click Playlist and Comments, you'll see the cover image, front and center, there's a giant whale. That's the only image, uh, and and the background is this this deep sea blue uh, color that is backgrounding this, this, looks like maybe a woodcut, I, I can't tell, but this interesting image of a whale, this drawing of a whale. And the subtitle of this book, Up From the Depths, is Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times. And so there are, there are three parts of that subtitle that all come up in this interview that I need to prep you for a little bit. Herman Melville, you probably know, but let me just state, state the obvious for anybody who doesn't know, which is fine. Herman Melville, one of the great American writers, he's best known for a novel called Moby Dick, which is about a whale, hence the image of the whale on the cover of this book. Uh, although Melville wrote um, much, much else, both, uh, both novels and uh, poetry. And then uh, Lewis Mumford came about 100 years after Melville. Melville was uh, 19th century. Uh, Lewis Mumford got started in the probably the 1930s, I guess, in the U.S., another American writer. And he was, uh, he was a generalist wrote widely on a number of different topics, but especially two topics. One was architecture and urban design, and the other topic was technology. And he was a, he was a critic and an advocate for better design and just really well-read, well-spoken, well-written <laughs> uh, advocate for, for doing better in, in both of those areas, urban design slash architecture and in technology. And uh, longtime listeners of the show will probably recognize the name Lewis Mumford, because he's come up on a number of past shows. I've never really done a, a deep dive into Lewis Mumford and his work, but uh, this book, Up From the Depths, does give us a close look at Mumford's life and how he relates to Herman Melville, because as it turns out, Melville had mostly fallen out of favor, his writing, that is, had mostly fallen out of, out of favor by the early 20th century, and this, this young tech critic, of all people, helped bring about the Melville revival. It wasn't, it wasn't just Mumford, but Mumford and, and a couple of others really spe- spearheaded the Melville revival. And throughout his career as a technology critic, 
Lewis Mumford continually, continually uh, made reference to Melville's writings, especially Moby Dick, which we're going to get into in this, in this interview. Let me just read you something that Lewis Mumford wrote, his best-known uh, best book um, called Technics and Civilization. This is a book that I read a few years ago, and I marked up the book as I do, as, as I read these books, to, to remember phrases and ideas for, for later when I go back. And I just open it up, and I flip through today, Technics and Civilization, and here's something that, that jumped out at me. This is by Lewis Mumford. Against the convenience of instantaneous communication is the fact that the great economical abstractions of writing, reading, and drawing, the media of reflective thought and deliberate action, will be weakened. That is to say, Mumford's saying that the instantaneous communication will weaken those things, reading, writing, reflective thought. And he continues, as with all instruments of multiplication, the critical question is as to the function and quality of the object one is multiplying. In other words, if technology is an amplifier, it's really important that we choose the good things to amplify and not the bad things. And certainly, certainly, we do not build trillion-dollar companies out of amplifying the bad. We should not do that. <laughs> and in fact, that's what we ended up doing. But what about this idea of instantaneous communication weakening our ability to read and write and have reflective thought? Here's the punchline of this, of, of this whole quote, and the reason I'm bringing it up before I play this, this interview with Aaron Sachs. Lewis Mumford wrote that phrase, wrote that section that I just read to you from Technics and Civilization in the year 1934. All the way back in 1934, Lewis Mumford was already warning us against the, the perils of handing over all of our powers of ref reflective thought over to these new tools of instantaneous communication. Of course, back then, the, the, the brand new thing was the telephone, and soon, soon enough it became the television, and he did not have any foresight into what would become the, the toxic sludge factories of big tech in Northern California that, that we're faced with today. He, di he didn't uh, he, he did not predict those details, but in the abstract, on a philosophical level, he was trying to warn us back in 1934 and, and, there, and thereafter into the 1960s, don't do it. <laughs> be careful. Don't do, be careful what you amplify. This is what's going to happen. And here we are almost 100 years after Lewis Mumford wrote Technics and Civilization, and we are suffering from exactly the effects that he warned us against because we chose, we as a society, not all of us, but those, the, the powerful among us chose to amplify the very worst, the very worst of humanity in order to monetize it. And that's how you get things like Facebook and TikTok and, and YouTube and so on, as we've as covered ad nauseum on, on previous shows. But anyway, that, those effects that Mumford warned us against decades ago have come to pass and have created for us these dark times that we live in. Uh, technology is not the, the only cause of the problems in our society, but it is one of the primary causes. The big tech companies that we are trying to resist here at Tectonic are one of the main causes of social division and inequality and even the, the rising uh, the specter of climate change as their data centers are starting to eat up our, our electric grid alive. But that's not the uh, focus of this story. Anyway, Lewis Mumford uh, was, a, was a very prescient, um, very smart, brilliant, well-written uh, critic and, and uh, prophet, in a way, of where we were headed with technology. And, uh, and he drew on Herman Melville along the way. And I found it fascinating how Aaron Sachs drew out that connection throughout this book to tell us why Mumford is still important, but also why Herman Melville is still important. And we should be reading both of these gentlemen still today. So let me go ahead and um, I'm going to play this interview with Aaron Sachs Again, he's a Cornell professor. He wrote a book called Up From the Depths, which we're going to be talking about. Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, and you can join in. Here is the interview here on Tectonic on WFMU.
Aaron Sachs, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. In addition to being a professor of history and American studies at Cornell, you're now the author of a thoughtful new book called Up From the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times. Let's start with Lewis Mumford, who was a well-known critic of technology and architecture and other things 50 or 60 years ago, but not so well-known today. Why is Lewis Mumford important for us to pay attention to today? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think on this particular podcast about technology, we should focus on what a cutting-edge thinker Mumford was with regard to both the, the sort of present and future of technology, which is what technologists usually talk about, but also the history of technology. He wrote an amazing book in 1934 called Technics and Civilization, which was one of the first uh, works to ever look back at the long sweeping history of the role that technology has played in uh, the Western world, going, going back to the Middle Ages, really. Um, and not just the role of technology, but really the way that people have thought about technology. And that just provides such an important basis for thinking through how we want to use technology and what we think the future should be like for technology. Yeah, I remember reading Technics and Civilization a few years ago. It really spun my head around. <laughs> yeah. This was written so many decades ago, and it reads so fresh. Well, not all of it, but most of it reads so right. fresh. <laughs> but one of the things that stuck out to me, and I think it's one of the better known parts of that book, is the idea of the clock, mm -hmm. that the medieval monasteries were the first to really use a clock to synchronize the prayer times, which then started to synchronize other things in the towns and villages, and how the clock has become kind of a unifying system for the world since then, and, and even more so today, because now we all carry around these little surveillance devices in our pockets that have these super fast clocks and everyone is getting synchronized to that. That's a great starting point for that book. And um, there's lots to talk about there. And even in, and what Mumford says is even before the clock, right, which was invented in the 13th century, there was the bell in the monastery, which was this technology used as, as he puts it, not, not just to mark time, but as you suggested, to, to regulate human action, right? So it's, it's like, hey, everybody has to be on this exact same discipline. That's not an inherent power of the bell or the clock. It's the way that people decided to use those technologies. And it had a profound effect on people's mindsets. It started to be assumed that that kind of regularization and uh, and synchronization was a good thing. And, you know, what Mumford constantly wants us to do is question that kind of assumption and say like, okay, this, this turns out this decision was made a long, long time ago. H how do we feel about it now? And that's a powerful question to ask, as you say, ab about our current devices. Okay, so we've established that Lewis Mumford is still important today, in some ways maybe even more important, the kinds of questions that he raised starting in the 1930s all the way through, I guess, the 1970s. And we have not fully engaged with those questions yet, even as we're careening into this super technological society, the degree to which Mumford could probably only imagine. Right. Let's bring this a little bit back to your book, Up From the Depths, because mm. you're, you're covering Mumford, but you're also covering Herman Melville, who I think listeners will recognize that name from as the author of Moby Dick and right. Billy Budd and many, many other pieces of prose and poetry. You do something very interesting in this book, covering the lives of these two writers who are separated by a century. There are chapters on Melville and chapters on Mumford, and they alternate. You're mm -hmm. alternating your, your look at their lives and their, uh, their careers. How did you settle on that really interesting structure for the book? Yeah, thanks. Um, that's really at the heart of the conception of the book. I really wanted this book to be about the dialectic between change and continuity, 
and this is something that, again, Mumford was really, really helpful in thinking through um, and that could be useful to us today, I think. We live in a, a moment where it's really change that is emphasized, the assumption, um, and, and it's understandable why, right? I mean, we, we live in a society that is addicted to a certain idea of progress and growth. Um, and so change is considered to be not only a good thing, but an inevitable thing. And the past is considered to be irrelevant often and, you know, irretrievable. So the structure of this book is meant to show that, yes, well, well of course, change is constantly happening and there's no getting around that. At the same time, there's always continuity. There are always resonances between different historical periods. And that can be really, really useful, Some, sometimes just sort of bolstering to morale to say like, oh, you know, this, this thing that we've been calling unprecedented is not at all unprecedented. We've been through this before and we figured out certain strategies for how to cope with this type of thing. Also, it's just a matter of seeing the way that the things we consider to be new really are not that new. It's, it's like, take the shine off of all of these new devices, these new technologies. And remember that actually we, we have had tools like this before. But let's think about how we've used and misused them in the past. And again, be more thoughtful about how we're going to use them in the present. So just to make this a little bit more concrete and then I'll finish, Mumford's idea was as, as he came out of the shell shock of World War I, everyone was so demoralized. He, he just didn't understand how to figure out moving on in this kind of context. And he didn't figure that out until he looked back to the Civil War and the writings of somebody like Herman Melville and saw like, oh, yeah, this, this shell shock has happened before. This trauma at the society level has happened before. How did people deal with it then? And how should we understand that kind of period immediately after um, such a devastating event like a world war? So I wanted readers to have that experience in the book, you know, like for in one chapter, you're with Mumford in the immediate aftermath of uh, World War One, and then suddenly you're with Melville in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, and the reader can make those kinds of connections on their own. Yeah, that resonance really came through in the book, both the recovery or somehow plotting forward after a traumatic war, uh, as you say, whether it's the Civil War or World War I. Mumford, of course, suffered his own trauma later on in World War II with the, the loss of his son, um, yeah. who was uh, killed in action in, in Italy. So there again, Mumford has to draw on Melville as well as other sources. But you're, yeah. you're focusing on Melville and chart some path forward, both for his personal life and for his grieving wife as well. They're, they're both trying to, to grieve the loss of their son and yeah. in his writing to continue to try to shine a light for American society. This is how we should conceive of where we are and where we've come from that will then inform where we can go. I thought you had a nice phrase about halfway through the book. You quoted Mumford. Uh, you write only quote, the perpetual rediscovery and reinterpretation of history make true progress possible. And then you continue, the past stops controlling us and in fact becomes our best tool for, as Mumford put it, the creation and selection of new potentialities. And I thought that was, that was a nice compact way of saying what, what you just said, that the, the study of the past far from being irretrievable or, as the Silicon Valley tech bros would have us think, irrelevant to their growth at any cost business models, the past actually is invaluable in helping us understand what the opportunities are for us to develop in the future. And the nice thing is about this book, one of the nice things, Aaron, is that you're taking us through Mumford's process of rediscovering and learning from Melville as an invitation for us to do the same. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the other pivotal things in this book is just the idea that Melville, who of course now is canonized, but 
was completely forgotten for several decades. And then there had to be a Melville revival starting in the 1920s, which Mumford was a big part of. And as you suggested at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, Mumford was hugely important in the 20th century, but now largely forgotten. So another hope that I had in writing this book is that there could be a kind of Mumford revival. I find it uh, incredibly useful, helpful, bolstering to just keep looking back at these kinds of past figures. And, um, and I, I, you know, I try to convey this to my students in, in my teaching all the time as well. It's absolutely not irrelevant. It's, there's something so powerful about, I'll give you another Mumford Melville example. Mumford is trying to figure out the psychology of the modern person. And for instance, during World War II, which as you said, was absolutely devastating to him personally. How do we get people who are willing to drop those kinds of incendiary bombs and then the atomic bomb? How is that possible? That that action, which the people doing it know that that's gonna kill tens of thousands of people immediately. And he goes back to Melville and he thinks, for instance, about Captain Ahab in Moby Dick and the way that he gets this entire crew to, to sort of go along with this crazy idea, basically suicidal idea of uh, trying to attack this one white whale when all of the crew, you know, literally everyone on that ship is there just to make money and then go home. Anyway, so he's thinking about what's the psychology because, because the crew really does get behind the mission. Ahab convinces them in the, you know, like in the first few chapters of the book and, and they're all like, rah, rah, okay, let's get Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> how does that happen? There's a much longer explanation, but basically in the modern world, what Melville is saying is we all started to get a little bit more distanced from the impact of our actions. And we just started thinking less about how we live the so-called market revolution, which happened in Melville's time, made it so that instead of making your clothes or producing your own food, you were buying things at the store. And really, you had no idea how those things were created or how they even got to you. And that sort of process just makes it easier and easier for, for people not to think through what they're actually doing on a daily basis. You know, what's, what's the meaning of this action that I'm taking? oh, well, it's my job to drop the bomb, so I'm dropping the bomb. That's just my job. I'm part of a system that I don't understand. It's much bigger than me. It's not my, it's not my concern, really. Moby Dick comes up many times in this book, uh, up from the depths, because, as you say, Mumford is constantly, throughout his career, drawing on the themes, the characters like uh, Captain Ahab and the, the multiple meanings of Melville's novel, one of the meanings that one can derive, as you write, from Moby Dick is the slow descent into madness and monomania of some crazy and ultimately harmful goal that, yeah. as you say, that Ahab brings the crew along. When I see references to Moby Dick, that's usually the conclusion that people are drawing. One thing I appreciated is that in your book, Aaron, you bring up the multiple meanings that can be derived and that Mumford was drawing from Moby Dick. Mm. For example, in one reading of Moby Dick, as you write, we can see Captain Ahab as a kind of a, a suffering hero yeah. who keeps going forward. He's persistent. He keeps persevering through all sorts of trials and mishaps and yeah. and pain <laughs> and despair, and he keeps going. And that heroic reading of Captain Ahab, although it may not be the, the primary in interpretation, but it's there, and I feel like that was also something that Mumford was drawing on. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, because it's, um, it, it's something I care about a lot. And as you say, it's, it's a, a sort of less frequently mentioned reading of Moby Dick. But there is, uh, Mumford finds a kind of noble persistence in uh, in Ahab's character. There's, there's, there's a kind of American individualism that is pernicious, but there's also a kind of American individualism that has a saving grace to it, that, that reminds us in the sort of Emersonian sense that 
we really need to think for ourselves, even in the face of certain other kinds of social pressures. And that's something that Ahab does very successfully. And that is something that Mumford drew on actually in the 1930s with the rise of fascism. And you know, one of, one of the interesting things that I try to trace in the book is that, of course, what, his, history is all about contextual thinking, right? And the meaning of Ahab as a character changes for Mumford depending on his context. So he finds himself in the late 1930s, he's very interested in what's happening in Europe. He's devastated by Kristallnacht. Um, he really, you know, he's quite sure that Hitler is trying to take over the world. And even if he isn't, meanwhile, he's going to kill a lot of innocent people. And he, you know, he basically says, we need to step in, in, you know, as, as immediate and muscular a way as possible. And he's completely isolated by that. Other American intellectuals are all saying like, no, 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 this is a European thing. It's, you know, it's even, it's a regional thing. Let the, let the countries immediately next to Germany take care of this. We're still devastated by World War I. This is not our concern. I liked one comment that you quoted. There was a, a fellow intellectual who Mumford had been friends with previously. But when Mumford starts speaking out and saying, we've got to do something about Hitler, we, we have to apply force and, and take care of the situation, this other intellectual writes this condescending message and says, you're nothing but an amateur architecture critic. (laughs) So Mumford really took a professional, he he had to pay a professional cost for taking this principled stand. Yeah, that that person was actually the famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, It was was really scathing. But Mumford, you know, to his great credit, in 1939, again, before anybody else was wanting to do anything, he was publishing a book saying fascism is the biggest issue in our world right now, and we have to take a stand against it. We have to intervene in Europe, 1939. And he again, Ahab was a, was a kind of inspiration to him in that stance. I, I think it's quite remarkable. Later on in his life, he shifted again and went, went back to criticizing uh, Ahab more than he praised him. But it's just, it's interesting. And, and that is, I think, the, the, one of the enduring powers of literature is, is that, you know, you can constantly find meaning, find value, and sort of get help in thinking through whatever you're confronting in the moment. And we're back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We're halfway through my interview with Aaron Sachs, talking about his new book, Up From the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments. Alternatively, you can go, if you're listening in the future, to an archive or podcast, Go to tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm. It's a one-page site with all our recent shows. Click on the playlist link for today's show, September 19, 2022. And you can see links to Aaron Sachs and the book and read the comments that listeners are posting now. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Aaron Sachs on his book, Up From the Depths here on Tectonic on WFMU. Well, also, this book is heartening because you're giving examples of two writers who are making, as I said, principled stands. Um, Melville also was writing difficult truths about American history its treatment of African-Americans and Native Americans, and his contemporaries did not want to hear it. That's right. Those principles that Melville stuck to cost him a dear price professionally. 
uh, and personally. I mean, in, in the end, he's working in a customs house in New York City, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He, he, right? He was unable to use his connections uh, to become a diplomat. He tried this. He, he mm-hmm. tried other things. And his books weren't selling very well. And But Melville, like Mumford, was a truth teller and yep. was willing to pay the cost. And uh, not to personalize this too much, but I feel like, and you tell me if, if you're feeling this as well, because you're <laughs> writing this book about Rediscovery in Dark Times, published in 2022. And I'm thinking, well, a lot of these themes resonate with me because I see some very distinct threats that I cover on this show that run counter to the market mentality of the world right now. And there's a cost to be paid for saying this stuff, but somebody has to point out what's happening in my lane here on Tectonic. The effects that big tech companies and their government and and foreign partners are having on all of us, it's it's really terrible. But a lot of people don't want to hear it. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that work that you do. And I I am you're right, I, I'm trying to be a part of that as well. It's to criticize technology in this moment is is definitely to go against the mainstream. But there are all kinds of other things, uh, other issues that are similar and and that require this kind of truth telling. Well, you wrote at the end that your own major concern is climate change. So yeah. talk to me about the dark times we're in around climate change and the, the stand that you're trying to make in, in writing about this. Yeah, thanks. That's that's very true. Uh, I, I spend a lot of uh, hours every day thinking about climate change, and and it really does. It seems it seems like an incredibly dark time. Of course, there are many other, again, many other issues, but the the cloud of climate change is is hanging over us, and especially over younger people. I think you know, I'm I'm seeing it really in uh, in my kids and in my students. And, uh, and I think it's absolutely necessary to just not, not just think about climate change as the technical issue that it is, but also as a kind of cultural issue, a morale issue. Um, one, of the, one of the most difficult things about climate change is just how absolutely depressing it is uh, for so many people. It's overwhelming. And I think Mumford in particular is just incredibly good at engaging with the, the sort of dark, grim, horrible realities. You know, that, that's that's a big part of history. If you as soon as you start looking into history, you have to acknowledge that human beings have perpetrated horrors um, for centuries. And you 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 mentioned. African Americans and Native Americans, and Melville was really, really good at facing those horrors. This is this is the truth. This is the reality of American history. We built this country by enslaving Africans and displacing and killing Native Americans. Um, that's at least one important part of uh, the construction of American history. But then, what do you do next? And uh, and again, like I said, Mumford in particular was really good at taking that horrible history and turning it toward a kind of constructive mentality. So with regard to to climate change, um, I think seeing the problem as a historical problem uh, as well as a technical problem is one good first step in getting people to think about how we can change our mindsets. We can we can change our whole way of conceiving of society to live differently. After all, people lived differently in the past and, um, and there was lots of thriving that happened, for instance, in the 19th century. There are many ways of, many different ways of constructing society basically is the, is the message that, that history gives us. And that should remind us that there's nothing inevitable about what's coming in the future. You know, climate climate change is devastating and overwhelming, but there's nothing predetermined about what's coming in the next few years. We still have control, we have agency, or at least we have the opportunity to reshape society in different ways. So in my history classes, I'm just constantly trying to 
to remind students that the study of history proves that the, there's no such thing as inevitability. What it proves is contingency. There's, const, there's constant opportunities for people to intervene and change things. I want to give a counterpoint. Sure. Because it comes from your book. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> so I figure it's, it's, it's fair game. Yeah. Talking about this issue of morale and the despondent feelings that people can have, whether they study the past or the present yeah. in any depth, um, speaking of up from the depths, I know a little bit about how that feels. And so I resonated with this part near the end of the book. You're writing about Mumford, late career, looking back on the effects he's had and his writings have had on society's trajectory. And so you're writing about Mumford in the late 1960s or maybe by around 1970, and you write, Mumford had become one of the most celebrated public intellectuals of the 20th century, yet he still sometimes felt obscure and misunderstood, as most writers do. Mumford noted in his journal in 1967, quote, At the end of almost a half century's writing, I cannot see that my work has had any real influence in any of the fields I have touched. <laughs> Even old friends who should have known me better have often regarded me as a hysterical prophet of doom. <laughs> I read that and I thought, wow, Mumford had a pretty stark assessment of his career after 50 years. He hadn't had, and maybe this was a low point, you know, people get frustrated sometimes, but he's, he's writing his journal, I haven't had any effect on anything in any of the fields I've ever touched. <laughs> and then, you know, how can that not raise questions in the reader's mind? What am I doing with my career? And I'm speaking out against this or that technology or climate change or whatever. I could speak out for 50 years and write a whole series of well-received books what if, what if after 50 years of that, I draw the same conclusion that I haven't had any impact? Is it, is it really worth it? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Was that yeah. really Mumford's self-assessment? No, definitely not. I mean, you know, he, he um, like you said, sometimes we all have dark moments. Um, he definitely felt sorry for himself in various ways at, at various times in his career. But another way of putting it is, is that it actually can be liberating to feel like nothing matters. <laughs> you know, this, this, and, and this is, I do not mean this in a nihilistic way at all, but, you know, when, when Mumford and Melville was like this too, when, when they started thinking like, I'm, I'm not having any impact whatsoever that I can see, then you say, well, like I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I can be that much more true to my own vision. And you know, the, the key is persevering. Again, this is that 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 theme from uh, from Moby Dick and and the potential heroism, flawed heroism, but a kind of heroism of Ahab. Like, I have this vision, I'm I'm gonna keep going with it. And you never know, you know, what impact you might have down the line. That's another magical thing about uh, this story, right? I mean. Melville was certain that he didn't matter at all as a writer in the 19th century, and yet he was rediscovered uh, in the 1920s and 30s and ultimately canonized, and now pretty much everybody has heard of Melville. And so, you know, again, my, my hope is that Mumford will uh, get something of a revival as well and, um, and that people can, can sort of engage with him and learn from him um, the way they engage with Melville now. Yeah, in 20 years, they're going to be saying, oh, I remember the Mumford revivals kicked off by that guy, Aaron Sachs. What was that book? Uh, up from the Depths. Yeah, that started well, it. Maybe. <laughs> I, I certainly don't count on it. <laughs> the Mumford T-shirts, the Mumford ball caps. Yep. <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate what you're saying, that the difference is in the grit, the commitment to persevere, even through the suffering of the moment, maybe a protracted moment, is what makes the difference. And in fact, I underlined something, I think this is a quote from Israel Potter, which is a Melville book that 
I hadn't. I don't think I'd ever heard of Israel Parr. It shows shows yeah. you what I knew about Melville. Well, most people haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like a really interesting story, which we don't have to get into. But it's 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 an American who goes to England. <laughs> How about that as a as a summary? And has a, a bunch of um, difficult adventures over there. <laughs> but but Melville, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is Melville in writing about Israel Potter says that his, his main character, quote, seeks with stubborn patience to habituate himself to misery, but still hold aloof from despondency. Yeah. I thought, hey, that's a great one sentence statement of the thesis of this book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Melville. I mean, that's right. Um, you have to, you have to face the horror and the misery, but that doesn't mean you have to be overwhelmed by it. Yeah. To put in a, a, another brief plug for Israel Potter, nobody's ever heard of it, right? But it's an amazing book. It's also a, one of sh- one of Melville's shorter works, so it's it's actually pretty accessible. Um, and he wrote it. It's the only novel that was serialized that he wrote. He was, um, he had been writing short stories for uh, for periodicals in the early 1850s. He got really good at that. And he realized that there was actually more money in that than in publishing novels on their own. And uh, so he wrote this serialized novel and it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's Moby Dick with all of the sort of philosophical asides condensed down to like single sentences so so the action keeps flowing um and it's almost like i sometimes describe it as as like a the forest gump of the 19th century because israel potter you know like you said he goes to england and and then he immediately gets sent to france as a spy and he meets up with benjamin franklin um and then he gets onto a ship with john paul jones and then he runs into ethan allen you know it's 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 all of these famous people from the revolutionary era. And it's a book that, you know, is a really, really interesting take on the the American Revolution and the legacy of the American Revolution. It's an unusual, but very, very intriguing perspective. Melville takes this character, Israel Potter, just, you know, who was in the front lines in the American Revolution at the Battle of Bunker Hill, and then what happens to him? You know, like we 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 want to think of the American Revolution as this amazing heroic moment where our country was founded. And Melville is saying, like, okay, let let's look at what happened to at least one of the soldiers. And and it's a novel based on a memoir. Israel Potter was a real person who wrote a memoir explaining his story. And and basically it's a it's a story of poverty and suffering. And as such makes the reader think twice about what the American Revolution really was and who benefited from it and uh, and that sort of thing. So strong recommendation for Israel Potter if you're in, if you're interested in Melville's more obscure works. Aaron, your enthusiasm is infectious. Oh, I can thanks. imagine <laughs> you being a fantastic uh, history professor there at Cornell. Thank you. And your book, again, it's called Up From the Depths, is inspiring in a lot of ways. But in one way, it's inspiring readers to go back and have a rediscovery of their own, of Herman yeah. Melville and Lewis Mumford. And I wanted to ask, maybe as a final question, who's inspiring you? Maybe from the past or maybe a contemporary writer. Who's, who is fueling your passion and perseverance right now, Aaron? Oh, uh, thanks. Thanks for the question. I would give a, a different answer at, uh, at any particular moment. But I guess what I'll emphasize right now is, you know, we, we, it really does feel like dark times. And, um, and I have two big strategies for, for coping with dark times. One of them is history. And, you know, we talked about that today. And that's that idea of constant retrospection um, is a big part of this book. But the other big strategy is comedy. So I, I absolutely love uh, all forms of comedy, but I'll just mention one, one comedian who has been really sort of bolstering to me in recent times. is named Gary Goleman. Like me, he's from, uh, from Massachusetts. I think he's about my same age. And, um, and his most recent special that was on HBO was called The Great Depression. 
and it's about depression. Um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a, a very very honest, clear-eyed look at the phenomenon of depression and his own uh, depression, which was incredibly severe. And he manages to make it funny and uh, and and sort of constructive. You 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 go away uplifted from this long out, you know, more than an hour long special uh, about depression. And I think that's that's an amazing accomplishment, and uh, and I'm grateful for it. So, Gary Goleman. Well, Aaron, I've really appreciated this talk, and uh, I appreciate the years and years of research and writing and editing you put into this great piece of work. The book is called Up From the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times by my guest, Aaron Sachs. Aaron, thanks again for being on Tectonic today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 12 minutes of the show. And then I want you to stay tuned to WFMU for Dust on the Decks with Derek coming up at the top of the hour. We just heard my interview with Aaron Sachs talking about his new book, Up from the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Rediscovery in Dark Times. And I think you saw that we talked about all three of those as promised in my intro. We talked about Herman Melville and his significance, Lois Mumford and why he was drawing on Melville. And then finally, we talked about Dark Times, the uh, dark times that I cover here on this show, primarily caused by the machinations of unethical trillion-dollar tech companies out on the west coast of the U.S., and Aaron's primary concern, climate change. And, of course, as I said before, those are those uh, issues are, are closely linked, and I should probably do a little more about big tech's complicity in the, in the climate crisis, but that's for another show. I was just really impressed with this book. I learned a lot about both of the writers covered in Up From the Depths and uh, and most of all, I just, I loved that, th that thought that came out of that quote from Israel Potter, Melville's book, that, yes, you're going to have to go through some tough times. It's, it's a fact. But don't despair. <laughs> as bad as it gets, just keep going, as Aaron said. It's perseverance. Even if you think you're not having any impact, that's, that's liberating, then you can do whatever you want. Be even truer to your vision and just keep going. It, friends, I'm just talking to myself right now. You understand uh, this, is a, um, this, is, this is a relevant topic for me running this show week to week. And maybe it's relevant to you and, and your endeavors as well. So I, I, um, I appreciate Aaron taking the time to, to speak with us. And I hope you enjoyed that and found some, some food for thought and maybe maybe a book that you would like to read yourself. Uh, there are links to the book and to Aaron Sachs on the playlist at WFMU.org, or again, find the playlist on tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, if you're listening to an archive or podcast in the future. Tonight is uh, September 19, 2022. Now, in the few minutes we have left, um, I mentioned that there's an update from last week's show. Last week was the five-year anniversary of Tectonic, and I brought up a bunch of past shows or excerpts of past shows as suggested by you, the listeners, and thanks to everyone for contributing those, those great suggestions. Um, one listener said that they really enjoyed the, uh, the show uh, back a couple of years ago about eBay and eBay's program of harassment against a uh, a couple in Massachusetts who were writing an e-commerce blog that occasionally would say something mildly critical of eBay. And uh, you can go back and listen to the show last week if you want to hear the excerpt. The, the link to that whole playlist, uh, to that whole show, the eBay show, is on last week's playlist. And I won't get into that. We don't have time for that. But that's the, 
piece from last week that actually has an update. Coincidentally, I happened to look at the New York Times yesterday, Sunday, September 18, 2022, and what do I see but a giant story with an update on the eBay mess. It's still going. Not, not that the harassment is still going, that's done. But the couple in Massachusetts, Ina and David Steiner, are suing eBay. So here I can read a bit from this story. It's written by David Streitfeld in the New York Times, uh, September 18. The headline, at eBay, lurid crimes and the search for punishment. Because the CEO who ordered his lieutenants to take her out uh, or, or uh, do whatever it takes, it was between him and his head of communications. The two of them were singing texts back and forth to each other, talking about how they're going to take care of it. And, you know, you can read the story to get the exact wording of these texts, but they were, they were pretty explicit that they were intending to do something um, pretty vile against the, these innocent writers uh, in Massachusetts. The, the story says, Ina and David Steiner are suing eBay and former eBay CEO Devin Wenig, who is no longer chief executive, and they're suing many others as well, saying the campaign against them was not the activity of a rogue team, but something closer to official company policy. Mr. Wenig, according to their suit, gave eBay security employees carte blanche authority to terminate the reporting of the Steiners by whatever means necessary. And so here comes uh, eBay's defense. The phrase take her down, is being taken out of context, Mr. Wenig <laughs> said in a court filing. He acknowledges writing it to Steve Weiner, the director of communications, and then Mr. Weiner, Weimer excuse me, followed up by writing a series of texts to the security chief, Jim Baugh, eBay's top safety and security executive. So the CEO says, take her down. The CEO of one of the biggest and most powerful companies in Silicon Valley, tells his head of communication, take her down. And so he tells his head of security uh, to do, what it, do whatever it takes. And they started this, this awful program of harassment. Whatever happened to Devin, Devin Wenig and Steve Weimer, these guys who were complicit in, in starting, this, uh, starting this, this train rolling? The story says Wenig quote, left without cause, which meant he qualified for an exit package of $40 million. So, friends, they're saying that since, since Wenig um, didn't, <laughs> he didn't do anything wrong, said the board. He, he didn't leave with cause. They didn't fire him, in other words. So they just gave him $40 million on the way out. And now, Devin Wenig is on the board of General Motors, and he's described as retired from eBay. Definitely not fired. $40 million in a board seat at General Motors. Wow. How about Steve Weimer? Mr. Weimer is currently, this is the head of communications, okay? Mr. Weimer, who, Weimer is currently president of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Silicon Valley. Man. The things I could say about the double standards in this country right now, but I'm just about out of time. But anyway, go to the playlist and uh, read that. And <laughs> we're in dark times, friends, but let's stick together. Let's persevere together and we'll get through this. I want to finish with a quick poem by W.S. Merwin that has a lot to do with what we're talking about this evening. Came across this recently, and I think this is a great, very relevant poem. It's called, and the, the title is very important, it's called Convenience. We were not made in its image, but from the beginning we believed in it. Not for the pure appeasement of hunger, but for its availability. It could command our devotion beyond question and without our consent and by whatever name we have called it. In its name, love has been set aside. Unmeasured time has been devoted to it. Forests have been erased and rivers poisoned and truth has been relegated for it. Wars have been sanctified by it. We believe that we have a right to it. Even though it belongs to no one, we carry a way back to it everywhere. We are sure that it is saving something 
We consider it our personal savior. All we have to pay for it is ourselves. And that was Convenience by W.S. Merwin. Thanks again, everybody, for being with me this evening. Thanks to Aaron Sachs for his time. And please stay tuned, friends, to WFMU. Dust on the Decks with Derek is next. And uh, we're going to go out to a new song by a friend of the show, Mecca Maiko. Has a new album out on Bandcamp called Not Okay. And we're going to hear the radio edit that I put together <laughs> of a good song from Mecca Maiko called The Kids. And you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. there WFMU listeners this is Derek Peter bringing you dust on the decks old time folk country ballads and so much more we're gonna kick things off here with a version of Lee Mills by Lena Harmon this is one of Bobby McMillan's favorite tunes and one of mine I hope you enjoy here it comes What you call my name I was once without a murder stain But you will hear the story told Of how I came to be so bold It was one bright and summer's day when will harden let me astray he calls me to commit a crime of which i'm now compelled to die my mother dear 
has prayed for me her smiling face i long to see but death cold death has come at last and took her troubles from her breast my little girl we now must part to see your tears it breaks my heart if it were not for leaving you here to cry i would not care so much to die come on ye rude and rowdy men take listen to my last experience now never let anyone lead you astray to cause your death to win this way there is a scaffold i can see it was prepared alone for me and i must stand upon it soon and there to meet my fatal doom my time is up and i must go farewell dear friends on earth below i hope we'll meet above the sky and now i bid you all goodbye
grand then took plum to Wadaga jail. He went behind the bars to stay. Those beats and bruises they inflamed, which broke Columbus to his grave. Those brothers sleep in the same graveyard. Their wives and children's troubled heart. Their resting place there sure must be till they shall rise at judgment day. At judgment day we hope they'll rise to meet their Savior in the skies to sing God's praises o'er and o'er and be with Christ forevermore. The sheriff then went on the round to see if Granville could be found. There at his home he did a band, and at that place he was then found. Sheriff Webb held court up in our town and sent him on to the chain gang. For eighteen months he there must stay, except the governor hear him pray. Young men take warning by this case. Don't use strong drink while in life's race. Leave all such stuff then far behind. And your kind parents you should mind. Mrs. Sullivan singing George Collins. George Collins rode home one dark stormy night. George Collins rode home so gay. George Collins rode home.